The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange. Here's what's ahead today. Reopenings and macro data were key drivers of market action in the just-ended quarter. Will the next six months be driven by vaccine news like today? We'll debate that. Plus, it's full speed ahead for Tesla, the company becoming the world's largest automaker by market cap, even though a full year of deliveries for them is what Toyota sells in two months. We'll have more. And reasons for optimism. Former NEC director Larry Lindsay says there's an indicator out there giving him optimism about spending and the stock market. He'll join us to explain. But we begin with today's markets, and Dom Chu is here to walk us through the action, Dom. On balance, it's positive, but it didn't start off that way, Kelly. So what you're seeing right now is a move just about flat on the day. We've seen gains and losses for most of the major indices here. The Dow Industrials at highs today were up about 206 points. Better data on jobs, private payroll specifically, some better data on the manufacturing environment in America, helping to kind of propel some of those gains. Meanwhile, you've got some increasing trade tensions, apparently with China coming up again. So all of those play into the trades overall right now. 31.16 a level in the S&P. Now, take a look at these because FedEx shares soaring today. Those earnings results really helping to shape up the transportation stock here, up about 12% of the session so far. That was at one point helping to propel some of the gains of the Dow Jones Transportation ETF, ticker IYT. Still, though, FedEx, a huge stock to watch, the best performer in the S&P 500 so far today. And then we're going to watch what's happening with Facebook. The social media giant is taking some steps to meet with some groups to kind of go over its response to its platform, what it's doing in terms of its message, what kind of stuff's happening there. The stock is up about 4% right now. And remember, we've seen a good amount of volatility over the last couple of months here in Facebook, stuck in a range. But so far today, we'll see if anything they can do to help solve the advertising boycott and propel those shares higher. Meanwhile, we we're watching everybody else out there in social media as well. Kelly, back over to you. All right, Dom. Thank, thank you very, very much. Let's get to the race now for a vaccine with promising early trial results from Pfizer today. The stock shooting up today. It's moderated those gains to about four and a half percent. Still a big move. Meg Terrell is here with all the details for us. Meg. Hey, Kelly. Well, these are very early data. The first from human trials that we're seeing of Pfizer's vaccine with the German biotech BioNTech. Uh, now, they tested 45 participants in this trial, and we got results uh, on 24 in two low-dose groups. They said all 24 of these healthy participants in the trial generated what are called neutralizing antibodies. Those are the important ones because they block the virus from being able to infect the cell. Uh, they said the levels they observed of those neutralizing antibodies were about two to three times higher what you'd see in patients who've recovered from COVID-19. Now, safety is also very important. They said the most common side effects were pain at the injection site, fatigue, headaches, and they did observe some fever, particularly after the second dose with the higher, uh, uh, the second shot with the higher dose of the vaccine. We talked with Pfizer's chief scientific officer, Dr. Michael Dolston, about the data and what comes next. Here's what he told us. While this is early observations, and before you can be absolute confident in uh, the direction for what we're hoping to be uh, a phase three going into a 
large data set that could be the foundation for an emergency use authorization in the fall and a potential approval shortly thereafter. There are, of course, hurdles that we need to pass and more data that we need to generate. And they're heading quickly toward a phase three trial in the second half of July. And here is how these trials are lining up, Kelly, in the United States. Moderna said it plans to start a 30,000 participant trial uh, this month. Then Pfizer, AstraZeneca's close on their heels. Johnson & Johnson also saying by September. And so what Dr. Dolston was saying is they could potentially have emergency use authorization of their vaccine if all goes well this fall. Kelly? couple of questions, Meg. The first is the results found this elevated antibody level might be a dumb question, but are we sure that that will protect people against getting COVID? Is that part of these uh, trials yet or not? That is the not a dumb question. That is the question. Uh, and we just don't know yet. And, and Pfizer and BioNTech uh, acknowledge that in the manuscript that they published online. So what will be needed is these massive phase three trials to tell uh, if these vaccines actually protect people from getting the disease. And we will see a better understanding through these trials of what levels of immune response are needed in order to be protective. And also, so you said these antibody levels in people who received the vaccine are, were about two to three times higher than, uh, than others or than the placebo. This reminds me, going back to what the guidelines that were just laid out earlier this week were for a vaccine, which found that it, correct me if I'm wrong, had to be at least 50 percent higher uh, in terms of the antibody levels than what kind of an ordinary person would have. So I'm, I'm still curious if that 50 percent threshold is a relatively low bar. You know, where are they setting that bar for this vaccine relative to others? You know, granted, this trial appears to have cleared it by a pretty wide margin. So the guidelines for approval are not based on antibody levels in the blood because we don't know what level is going to be protective. So this guideline is for something we haven't seen yet, and it's just for preventing infection uh, or preventing disease. So once they run the phase three trials, they'll have a placebo group and a vaccine group. And what they need to see is 50% less infection or disease in the vaccine group than the placebo group. So we have to hmm. wait for those results before we have any idea. Um, so that will be what we'll be looking for in those trials. Okay, great. So that's not, not related to the antibodies, but just people's reactions overall. Meg, thanks as always uh, walking us through. We appreciate it. Meg Terrell with the very latest. That vaccine news did boost the market into positive territory today after we were down about 250 points pre-market. But stocks are struggling to hold these gains now. Why not more excitement over these developments? Joining me now to explain, Brian Belsky is chief investment strategist at BMO Capital Markets. And Marianne Montaigne is portfolio manager at Gradient Investments. It's good to have you both here. And Brian, should we expect a bigger reaction when we get, you know, big positive vaccine news like this? I mean, the vaccine news is far more important than treatment news, I would think. It is, Kelly, and thanks a lot for having us. I think there's so much um, misunderstanding with respect to vaccines and antibodies and things like that. And we have the very good fortune of moderating BMO Financial Group's uh, COVID-19 pandemic calls with our, with our great medical expert, Dr. John White from WebMD. And the, the, the antibody thing is a big deal because I think there's a, there's a real misunderstanding there. But I think there's perspective that needs to be uh, put forward with respect to the FDA has done an unbelievable job. If you think about how fast typically a drug goes from trial to actually approval, it's on average 18 to 24 months. And that's actually pretty fast. To think about how 
the incredible uh, speed of getting this drug out or potential drugs is unbelievable. And I think that's what the confidence should be. With respect to the market today, Kelly, you have to, again, have some perspective. We had one of the most unbelievable quarters we've had in 20 years. True. And so there could have been a little bit of a slowdown there. But I think the, the main focus on, on the vaccine going forward is going to be all about credibility and making people feel more confident about living their lives and getting out there. Yes, absolutely. Marianne, would you echo that? And does it become, you know, this kind of binary outcome about the vaccine? Does this become a more important driver than the macro data, than what's happening with reopenings? Uh, because it kind of overrides all of those trends. Yeah, I think Brian and I are both from hockey towns, and we see the number of shots on goal that are out there for vaccines and some other important treatments. Uh, the therapeutics, I think those are both very, very important vaccines being number one. Uh, as to the macro data, I think we have to watch that in the meantime, because, you know, we have to ignore some of the headlines and look at what's really going on with things such as manufacturing index, you know, inventories being very low, other things that will drive the economy in the meantime. Marianne, where would you, I see here that you do like high yield bonds, you believe spreads will narrow in fixed income. So it sounds like you're kind of bullishly positioned. And I imagine the Federal Reserve has a lot to do with that. And and how comfortable would you feel maintaining that kind of positioning? Again, you know, we're looking at those two things hand in hand. And uh, I think it is a very uh, positive outlook for high yield bonds because we went to that you know, extraordinary um, uh, spread of 1087 basis points of high yield bonds against treasuries. And then it's narrowed back by about 40 percent so far. I, I think we can expect that to narrow further. And I think that's going to be a big driver of the earnings while you're collecting a lot of income. Brian, I'll turn to you. You like tech, communication services, some discretionary, some REITs, but you're not a big believer in any of the market myths that you would describe them about tech being a bubble, the market being too expensive. You have a 3,400 uh, S&P price target by the end of the first quarter of 2021. Um, I mean, I could see 3,400, but what gives you the confidence to reach it that quickly? Well, you know, again, you know, Marianne used the hockey analogy, so I will too. You know, we've been skating backwards in the market now for a while playing defense, and I think the majority of people that have been negative about the market, quite frankly, Kelly, missed the whole move. And, you know, again, to be clear, we published on March 23rd and said the market was going to rally 40 to 50 percent, that we're going to see unbelievable gains to the upside because of just the strength of corporate America and corporate Canada, for that matter, as money comes back to North America. Now we've got a spike in the savings rate. We had a spike in money market rates, almost $5 trillion of money sitting on the sidelines that have been underinvested in stocks for a while. So we want to own the best companies in the world. No, by the way, the best companies in the world in the United States. So I think this whole notion of being a growth or a value investor is bunk because I think you have to be both and just buy really good companies. And that's why that's why the Nasdaq has been so resilient. And oh, by the way, that's why financials, especially the big money center banks, are going to be very well positioned in, in the equipment and device uh, and drugs and, and biotech names within healthcare. You absolutely positively from a demographic and longer term secular basis want to be in healthcare and tech especially. All right. We'll leave it there. Enough ho hockey talk uh, for today. Brian Belsky and Marion <laughs> Montaine, thank you so much for joining me. Appreciate it, guys. Coming up, if you open, will they come? We're going to speak with one of the largest property owners in New York City. Are rent payments improving or are more tenants falling behind? 
Plus, Tesla takes the top spot and becomes the world's largest automaker by market cap. Not only that, it's bigger than corporate giants like Boeing and Nike. Can this keep going with Tesla up another 3% today? We'll explore the exchange. It's back in two. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. The 2020 presidential election is just over four months away, and those states most critical to the election are seeing an uptick in COVID cases. How do voters in these key places feel about reopening the economy? Kayla Tausche is here with more. Kayla? Hey, Kelly. Concerns about COVID have been growing in recent weeks. COVID jumping two spots to become the second most important issue for voters. It was fourth place a couple weeks ago, and now it stands just behind the economy. Now, in these six states that will decide the election, the number of likely voters who reported serious COVID concerns jumped nine percentage points in just the last two weeks. That's having an impact on activities that people are viewing as safe and also the precautions they're taking, especially in those states across the Sun Belt, where we have seen cases and hospitalizations rising. In those states, a larger share of respondents are wearing a mask, avoiding crowds and social distancing. And while the number of people overall that are sheltering and working at home has fallen, voters are growing increasingly wary of participating in every single activity we asked about, from going to a bar, to attending a movie, to using a ride-sharing app, to taking a flight. Now, voters are placing some of their fears and business backpedaling on states that open too quickly. But voters place most of the blame on President Trump, who in four months of conducting this survey is shouldering the highest share of blame in the survey we just conducted in the last week. Interesting. Kelly? All right, Kayla, thanks very much. Kayla Tausche with those survey results there. Meantime, New York City is expected to begin its phase three reopening on Monday, but Mayor Bill de Blasio says that will not include indoor dining anymore, as was originally scheduled. And as we head into a new month, it also means a new round of rent payments for real estate giants like my next guest, who owns more than 10 million square feet in Manhattan and parts of the tri-state area, including the world-famous Empire State Building. For more on the path forward for real estate, I'm joined by Anthony Malkin. He's chairman and CEO of Empire State, Realty Trust. It's great to have you back. And I uh, guess we'll just start with, you know, are they paying the bills for July? So um, we'll disclose our actual uh, final uh, update for the next quarter earnings at the same time. What I can say is from the last time we spoke, rents have continued to come in and our rent collections have continued to improve. Uh, July rents aren't actually due until literally uh, the first. Uh, however, I can just tell you steadily, steady improvement over our uh, collections uh, prior to this point. What do you think of the mayor's decision not to open indoor dining? How, how does that affect you? And, and what's going on with the observation deck, which is such a big part of the Empire State Building's revenue? So let's, let's hit the, the observation uh, deck first. It is closed, but I'll tie that into the second point, which is indoor environmental quality. This has been a major focus of us throughout our renovation of all of our buildings in the uh, past decade. 
the fact that indoor environmental health is absolutely critical. So we have put in such things in all of our new spaces, including the observatory as MERV-13 filters, Atmos Air, which uh, kills off viruses, including coronaviruses, uh, MERV-13 filters capture viruses, and the third most important thing, ventilation. So in our offices at 111 West 33rd Street, we replace the air in our office completely once every hour. That's what happens at the observatory and the difficulty with a lot of this indoor dining is that's not the way that those uh, air conditioning systems and uh, cooling systems are designed. Yes. Similar to most buildings, which have these very large tied-in central systems, they just recirculate the air. So in, it's interesting because Governor Cuomo brought up the same issue and said he wanted you know, restaurants to have these kinds of filters that can kind of capture, in your case, as you said, kill coronavirus. Can you tell us about the cost, though? I mean, you know, you have a, a you're a property manager. This is obviously an investment that you need to make. But if you're a restaurant, is this financially feasible? Well, it's interesting. You know, our restaurants at the Empire State Building have this already, the MERV 13 filters and the atmosphere. That's part of our basic design build and everything that we do in our buildings. And as I said, we were focused on this before when it was an issue of indoor environmental quality, asthma, volatile off-gassing materials. Uh, to retrofit for MERV 13 filters and to install atmosphere, it's not a big burden. To incorporate ventilation is harder, and that needs to be part of a design chain. So I think you have the one hand to clear out what's recirculating in the air, and then the other hand is to bring in fresh air. That is more of a challenge unless you've planned ahead. Yeah, and I imagine that's what you know all these restaurant owners are struggling with, trying to figure out and whether that investment is going to be worth it for them or just to close up. You know, since we last had you on, we spoke with Jonathan Litt, who is reportedly shorting uh, companies, including yours, and, and thinks ESRT might bear the full brunt of this storm because of the observation deck being 25 percent of net operating income, your smaller tenants, older buildings, more apparel oriented. I'm sure it's not the first time you've had to address these concerns, but what would you say to investors like Litt? Uh, who are worried about your future. Well, look, everybody's entitled to take a position in the market. That's the benefit of markets. I think that anyone can report on what is happening today. I think you have to look at the longer term. First of all, our buildings are older, but they've all been modernized for the 21st century. We spent over a billion dollars in our entire portfolio to do that in New York City. And that's why we have this MERV 13 filters, atmosphere and ventilation in our new installations, in our observatory, in our building lobbies. In the, in the retail uh, components of our buildings, number one. Number two, we've greatly transformed our tenant makeup, expanded it to much bigger buildings. LinkedIn is our largest tenant, followed by other tenants. Some of them have, uh, have, have exposure to the garment industry. But what I would say is you gotta look at the longer term. You gotta look at balance sheet. We have a huge balance sheet. We disclosed in March, we have over a billion dollars. That gives us runway, the opportunity to grow and expand. Uh, how are we gonna create value over time and how are these uh, landlords positioned over the longer term against the greenhouse gas emissions bill, local law 97 in New York City, where we are leaders in this? Um, so I think that, look, markets are made by people going long, people going short. And uh, my view is very simple. We're built for the long term. We feel comfortable about our position. And there's one also long term trend I thought was interesting that you aren't a big believer in. You actually aren't a big believer in work from home because you think people have tried it before. It hasn't worked. And all of the trend stories about how this is going to be the new normal are off the mark. You don't think it's going to be different this time? You know, there's a great article in the New York Times came out on Sunday that specifically addressed this. All of the different companies that have tried this from IBM on have always gone back to bring people back into the office. The other thing about work from home, it's incredibly discriminatory. People feel isolated and abandoned. 
socioeconomically, if you were at the bottom of the stack trying to work your way up, this is very prejudicial. It's very prejudicial against minorities and the whole Black Lives Matter. It's amazing that people would say, we're going to take these people who are strivers and we're going to keep them away from where they can learn, away from where they can form teams, away from managers who can teach them and make progress. Very discriminatory against working parents. You lose the value of hallway validation. The people who are 35 and under want to be in the offices, and they want their bosses there, not out at the Hamptons, not in the Catskills, not out in Colorado. So I think it's a bright, shiny penny. It's a great story for people to write about. Over time, the statistics are already coming in. People who are work from home are starting to fall off as far as productivity. The fact that, that businesses want to offload the cost of having an office on people and their homes and keep them away from building teams and culture to me is unbelievable. It won't last. It won't work. Very, very interesting. Anthony Malkin, uh, thanks for coming back. We appreciate all your thoughts. Thank you very much. He is the chairman and CEO. You too. It's my son's birthday. Uh, He is the chairman and CEO of Empire State Realty Trust. Coming up, can the S&P 500 hit 4,000? Former NEC director Larry Lindsay says it's possible. He joins us to explain what would get us there. Plus, tax day is now two weeks away and so much has changed this year. In fact, there are opportunities to earn interest on some of your refunds. We'll tell you about that ahead. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in a couple. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Let's check in with Sue Herrera for our CNBC News Update. Sue? Thanks so much, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. The number of job cuts at U.S.-based employers fell in June, but it is still more than quadruple year-ago levels. That's according to a new report from Challenger Gray in Christmas. The number of layoffs announced by U.S. companies hitting a total of 1.2 million throughout the second quarter, mostly due to the pandemic. A new study from Yale suggesting the official death count from the COVID-19 virus might be higher than what's been reported. The study finding that the number of excess deaths between March 1st and May 30th was 28 percent higher than the number of COVID-related deaths during the same period. And Tokyo Disneyland reopening today for the first time in four months, but with some new safety measures. Among them, visitors showing symptoms or who have a temperature over 99.5 degrees Fahrenheit are asked not to enter the park. And you also have to wear a mask. And New York City hosting a star-studded virtual graduation for the class of 2020. New York natives and celebrities Jennifer Lopez and Alex Rodriguez giving the keynote speech. You are up to date, Kelly. I will send it back to you. All right, Sue. Thank you, Sue Herrera. Tax day may have been extended this year, but the new deadline is fast approaching. It's July 15th. And this year, there's an added bonus for some filers. With just two weeks to go, let's bring in Sharon Epperson with what you need to know. Sharon? Well, Kelly, July 15th is not only the new tax day. It's also the last chance that you have to make some key moves that could save you money and perhaps help you make a little extra. Put up to $6,000 in an IRA or $7,000 if you're 50 or older. And depending on your income, you could get a tax deduction. If you have a high deductible health plan, you still have time to cash in 
an, on a health savings account, have account for the 2019 tax year. You can put in up to $3,500 and if you have an individual coverage and up to $7,000 for a family plan. And those contributions are tax deductible. Now here's another reason why you want to file your return by July 15th. And that is if you do a refund, you will be paid interest on that refund check from April 15th to the date of the refund. Now that rate was 5% through June 30th, and now it's 3% until September 30th. This is a rate that changes quarterly. Now the average refund this year is $2,700. If you figure that you get that refund by the end of July, you could earn about $30 on that money. But one thing you should know, that interest payment will be taxable. Kelly, back to you. That interest payment's taxable? Oh, come on. I mean, I thought this was fascinating that they would pay. I mean, it, of course it makes sense. It's our money. They're keeping it longer. We should, you know, demand that interest. But it honestly hadn't occurred to me, Sharon. And, you know, it may not be that big of an amount, but it's just, it's a nice little fill-up, right? It's a nice little fill-up. And you know what? Any little bit of money at this point, it's, it is yeah. really great to receive it. Yes, you're going to have to pay tax on it at your ordinary income tax rate. That's not something that probably you expected, but you probably didn't expect to earn any money on that refund in the first place. So a couple dollars won't hurt. No, so much to uh, to know in there this time around. Sharon, thank you so, so much. We appreciate it. It's great to see you. Sharon Absolutely. Epperson. And for more, head on over to CNBC.com slash invest in you. And coming up, former NEC director Larry Lindsay says there's one indicator out there that's making him optimistic about future spending in the U.S. He joins us to explain. Plus, help is arriving for millions of Americans who have exhausted their unemployment benefits. We will have those details next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get a check on the markets and some of today's big movers with Dom Chu. Dom. All right. So, Kelly, what we have right now are the Dow, the Nasdaq, right? They've both seen gains and losses today, but the S&P 500 has managed to stay, stay positive pretty much all day long. At the highs, though, the S&P was up 23 points. You can see that we're up about 18 right now. From a sector perspective, it's gains in stocks like utilities and real estate that are doing the best today. Meanwhile, you've got economically sensitive or cyclical energy sectors like energy, financials, and materials. You can see here really doing the lagging side of things. Now, if you take a look at some of these stocks to watch, you start off with Capri Holdings, which is down around 3% right now. The retailer posted a mixed earnings report but said its 2021 fiscal year will be impacted by the pandemic, though it's seeing some positive trends around stores. You can see there those Capri Holdings shares off 3%. Meanwhile, you've got General Mills lower despite posting better-than-expected profits and sales. The food producer, known for brands like Cheerios, helped along by stronger consumer demand during the coronavirus lockdowns and pandemic. And then we're going to end on Dun & Bradstreet and its IPO. The business analytics company sold shares at 22 bucks a piece, got as high as $25.87. Kelly, intraday so far today, you can see those shares up about 15% in trading right now. Back over And what you. was the story with FedEx, Dom? I mean, that was a monster. A monster and some of that positivity there really carrying through with regard to whether or not people are seeing some positive trends in shipping not just because of the COVID-19 pandemic, but whether or not they can carry that momentum into the second half of the year as well. Of course, we've all been getting more and more packages, but we'll see if those trends continue oh, for yes. FedEx. I know that I'm getting a lot of those packages these days. Oh, yes. See that truck around a lot. Uh, Dom, thank you, sir. Yeah. And speaking of stocks, just closed out the second quarter with some blowout numbers suggesting investors are hopeful about the recovery. 
But is this as good as it gets for the market? My next guest says no, that S&P 4000 could be on the way, especially if the fear of missing out takes over. Joining me now is Larry Lindsay. He's CEO of the Lindsay Group and former director of the National Economic Council under President George W. Bush. He is also a current member of the White House Great American Economic Revival Thought Leaders Group. So, Larry, it's great to have you. And you don't usually make big market calls. Why this one? Uh, Well, I just did some math on what's happening to the money supply. And um, we know that uh, when you have a a rapid expansion of the Fed balance sheet, uh, that the the main effect is in asset prices. And so I simply did a little extrapolation of um, what might be expected to happen to um, stock prices uh, if we continue to expand the balance sheet at the rate that uh, has been announced. And you're talking about about a 4,000 value, again, kind of as, as a, an exercise, by the end of 2021. Are you worried about the next couple of months? You know, I hear more and more talk about the cliffs we might be facing when uh, the un- extra unemployment benefits run out, when the PPP program runs out, uh, just the issue with more states uh, closing business back down. Uh, could it be a, a rough slog to 4,000? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we don't exactly live in a risk-free world. Uh, that was the ultimate understatement, I think. Uh, so we definitely have concerns with with the virus. Um, we have concerns uh, with the election ahead. Uh, and we have a whole raft of possible geopolitical concerns. Uh, so this is not a risk-free environment. My uh, The market so far have shrugged that off. Uh, we'll see if they continue to. But my calculation was mainly based on on the response of uh, the market to money supply increase. You mentioned politics. I want to talk about something that you've said, which might catch a lot of people by surprise. You're actually pretty bearish about President Trump's reelection prospects right now. And the line that really struck me is that you said Trump has until perhaps the end of the July 4th weekend, that's this weekend, to write the campaign ship or he will lose rather badly. Is he writing the ship? And what happens if he loses? Well, of course, um, no one knows exactly what is happening in that regard because it it really is the decision by the president, and I think he has to weigh a lot of options. But um, I think he has to be uh, much more uh, decisive about how he differentiates himself from the vice president. Um, I think that the Biden campaign is is following exactly the right strategy, uh, which is not to expose uh, the vice president. Uh, there's usually two questions in a re-election campaign, uh, time for a change or four more years. Um, and the public uh, usually, but as more in this case, is time for a change. But the second question is, hey, how's the change compared to what we've got? And, uh, you know, in his uh, public, uh, very, very rare public appearances, I think most people conclude that uh, the vice president really will have a challenging time uh, both mentally and physically, uh, carrying out his duties. So in that case, to keep the president, vice president in the basement, the only thing people focus on is Trump, and, um, and that's to the Biden campaign's advantage. So let me ask you what the implications of that would be, because you mentioned all this at the same time you're talking about S&P 4000 by the end of 2021. Do investors need to worry about the prospect of a President Biden uh, victory or the prospect of a Democratic sweep? Well, I think the, um, the first thing, markets have to be concerned about um, whatever is going to happen in 2021 and beyond. The uh, current fiscal and monetary stimulus 
is not a one-year deal uh, because it'll be very difficult to dial that back without uh, hurting the, uh, the economy. Uh, and so I think we have a, we're going to have an extended period of extremely easy monetary and fiscal policy. And one of my biggest concerns is a reemergence of inflation as a result. Uh, we're not exactly sure what the vice president is going to do. But um, if one reads what is said, uh, there's going to be a really extreme re-regulation of the economy. Uh, folk, people mostly focus on the tax changes, and of mm-hmm. course, they will be adverse. But, but it's going to be the re-regulation that's really going to hurt corporate profits. And that, you, I guess you would just say, is in the longer run. So we could have a strong market in the near term, and then it'd be, you know, I guess, further out that we face some of those headwinds. How would, what about a weaker dollar as well? You know, a lot of people have been betting on gold lately, and that's been touching new highs. Does that make sense to you? And does a weak dollar pose a, a threat to the economy at all? Well, the dollar is going to weaken. Um, it may weaken very quickly um, uh, if... Uh, if the vice president uh, were, were to win, uh, for a whole variety of reasons, I think you'd even have uh, greater fiscal and monetary expansion under under a Biden regime. And so, yes, uh, the dollar is likely to decline, and um, all kinds of assets um, go up uh, when the dollar goes down, uh, and interest rates stay very low, and inflation begins to creep up. And um, you know, I think. Prudent portfolio would be uh, heavily invested in those. Finally, Larry, what would your one piece of advice be for the president if he hears everything that you're saying and if you know running on the economy isn't going to do it? Uh, given everything you've just described, what would Larry Lindsay say? I think uh, you know he's running against what is essentially a cardboard cutout figure, uh, and again, that's a very very smart strategy. But he's got to then define uh, what four years under uh, that other option might be. And it's going to be um, very different from what people expect. Uh, and the, the president has to now define uh, Vice President Biden. Um, and it's very easy to define Trump. He's also got to define his opponent and point out to people that um, is, even though they don't like him, they may not want what is on offer either. Interesting. Larry, thanks for joining me today. I know we covered a lot of ground. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Kelly. Take care. Larry Lindsay is the former director of the NEC and with the Lindsay Group. As we await tomorrow's big June jobs report to find out the latest state of the economy, millions of Americans who are out of work have exhausted their state unemployment benefits by now, but there is more help available to them. Rahel Solomon is here with all of those details. Rahel. Hi, Kelly. Yes. So in every state but Utah and South Dakota, A program called Extended Benefits has triggered on. It provides an additional 13 to 20 weeks of unemployment benefits for those who have exhausted their state unemployment. So these benefits have been in place for half a century, and typically a state and the federal government split the cost. But as part of the CARES Act, the federal government is picking up the bill. And labor economist Kelly say it is a good thing because the unemployment picture is so dire that even states with the lowest unemployment rates in the country are in need of the benefit. When you see a state like Nebraska um, triggering on for the first time in, in years and years and years, and they enter this recession with uh, a relatively tight labor market, um, you've got to be real worried about just how 
widespread the devastation is from this virus and our failure to control it. And the extension of benefits is directly tied to a state's benefit. So, Kelly, if you're in a state like Florida that has one of the shortest windows for unemployment benefits, while the cap for extended benefits is also shorter. Now, the issue the last time extended benefits were triggered in a widespread way was during the Great Recession. They triggered on too slowly and they triggered off too quickly, according to critics. Well, Gupta says that this time his concern is when the program triggers off. He's concerned that it will trigger off too quickly, especially if we see the unemployment picture remain the same through the end of the year and even next year, Kelly. So, Rahel, the the point for investors here is is that they need to focus not just on the numbers for the kind of federal jobless claims being paid out, that the cliff might not necessarily come when those expire, but when, which varies by state, you know, those additional, those supplemental uh, benefits expire. Yeah, and so we're just now starting to, to see, if you can think about the 13 to 20 weeks, we're just now starting to see the extended benefits trigger on and people start to receive those benefits, right? So if theoretically you were at the end of your state's unemployment window when coronavirus struck, then you got an additional supplement because of the CARES Act. And now we're starting to see we're a few months past that point. Now we're starting to see extended benefits trigger on. How long remains to be seen depending on what happens? Yeah, as with so much of this. Rahel, thanks very much for that explainer. Rahel Solomon, we appreciate it. Coming up, Tesla takes the crown. The company becomes the largest automaker by market cap despite selling less than 400,000 cars last year. What's behind the move and can it last? That's next on The Exchange. Welcome back to The Exchange. It's another banner day for Tesla. It just hit yet another all-time high, and this time taking the market cap crown. It's up 165% for the year. It's up 430% nearly from its 52-week low. And today, it crossed the $200 billion mark from market cap. We're at $206 billion right now, as you can see, making it the world's biggest automaker in terms of how it's valued. How impressive is that? It's not only bigger than all the other automakers. It's bigger than Boeing. It's bigger than ExxonMobil. It's bigger than Disney, just to name a few. We crunched the numbers based on last year's U.S. sales. It would take Toyota less than two months to deliver as many cars as Tesla delivers in a year. And Tesla is now the more valuable company. For more on this and whether it can last, I'm joined by Dan Ives, managing director at Wedbush, and our own Phil LeBeau. It's great to have you both here. Um, I don't even know where to begin. Phil, I'll start with you. You know, we were just celebrating Tesla's 10 years as a yep. publicly listed company and, and, you know, the accolades that keep piling up. Is there any catalyst, you think, for this move today for, the, for it crossing this $200 billion market cap mark? I'm not sure if there's a specific catalyst for today's move, but I think what we've been seeing, especially over the last six months, is a real embrace by traders. And you can make an argument whether or not these are momentum traders or true believers. But clearly, there are traders who are embracing the idea that Tesla has the cleanest path, if you will, to a future with electric vehicles and that they are way ahead of their competition. Now, you can debate whether or not we will see electric vehicles take off, as many have predicted over the next five or six years. That's a great debate to have. But if you are a true believer, if you're somebody who says, yeah, I think electric vehicles are coming, this is your best option right now. Dan, I will echo the question from a viewer to Halftime Report last hour. If you own Tesla, do you take your profits, you know, do you, or, or does, it, does this keep going? And if so, how much more can it keep going? Yeah, and the stock continues to go higher here. Kind of like Phil talked about, it's a scarcity value. And I think if you look what's happening in China in terms of the EV market, it's early days, and I think you're seeing a spike. That's going to be key to these two Q delivery numbers. You put it all together, bull case, $1,500, 
And I think Tesla right now, what they're starting to look at is really Teflon-like demand in this COVID environment. But China's the key. We think China's worth three to $400 per share to the story. Okay. And you also think that this weekend or, or what happens in the next few days could be important because they're going to report those delivery numbers, correct? What are the expectations there? Look, expectations coming in are, you know, really going looking at about 70,000. But I think if you look now, whisper numbers and all the indications we're seeing in U.S. and Europe and China, you could potentially see an 85 to 90,000 number. And I think you put that together. That was something that was almost viewed as impossible if you go back a month ago. And this would really be a huge feather in the cap for Musk. That's why right now it's the drum roll to these delivery numbers. And I think that could be the linchpin to even move the stock higher. Phil, what would you echo on that front delivery-wise? I mean, it does, again, kind of bring to mind this comparison, which we hear all the time about how few cars Tesla sells versus how many all of the other automakers sell. And nobody seems to love owning or investing in one of the traditional automakers these days. Well, if you're buying or investing in one of the traditional automakers right now, Kelly, what is your hope for that stock to move higher? What do you believe is going to be the catalyst for the future? Let's take General Motors. Do you believe that it's going to be GM becoming a major player in electric vehicles? There are some indications that it could be a major player in electric vehicles, but it's got one foot in the present and one foot hopefully in the future. And right now, I think investors are looking for the clean play. And the clean play, if you believe in electric vehicles, is with Tesla. Nothing against the GM, Fords, and everybody else. I mean, they they make some fine products. But in terms of a catalyst for those stocks, I think people are looking around and saying, what yeah. is the catalyst? Phil, here, I mean, here's the thing, though. You look at the Ford F-150, for instance, one of the most iconic, the whole series, the whole F-series, not just the 150. Sure. And very profitable, but, extremely profitable. Absolutely. And Ford stock is under $6 today. Right. Well, you would also, the argument that you will hear from people is, that's great. But beyond the F-series, beyond some of the SUVs, what is it with Ford? What am I buying? Where do I think Ford will be in five or 10 years? Do you think Ford will be substantially different as an automaker? It could be, but there are a lot of question marks there. So you're taking, to a certain extent, a leap of faith that that $6 is going to triple, let's say, in three years or four years, whatever time frame that you pick. And there's no certainty there. Yeah. And so, Dan, I turn back to you. You've got a thousand dollar base case uh, price target on Tesla, fifteen hundred bull case. Um, Is this to you an automaker valuation, you know, piece of research here? Is it a technology company? Is it a hybrid? You know, what are the multiples and and what are the peers you're comparing it to? Yeah, that's a great point. I think that's the key is that the street treats Tesla. And I believe, you know, for for a good reason, as really a technology, disruptive technology player. And it gets that multiple. It's that scarcity value in terms of EV and and even some of the parts. When you look what's going to come on the battery side, a million mile battery, you know, could be on the horizon. So I think it does not trade like an automaker, trades like a technology player. And that's why it's a scarcity value. I, and I think even when you look at Cybertruck, we think it's 700,000 pre-orders right now. It just shows the pent-up demand for Musk and Tesla. Absolutely. And maybe that's where the F-150 loses a little bit of its luster. 
You know, I was just going to say I'm excited for Battery Day this year. <laughs> I don't remember no, even knowing the date uh, the last few times around. So certainly it, it is changing. Dan Ives, Phil LeBeau, thank you guys both. Thank you. On a big, big day for Tesla. We do appreciate it. Coming up, managing reopenings as restaurants begin to open their doors. There's a lot to deal with. Staffing, inventory, protocols, and more. We're going to speak with the CEO of Zenput, who's helping businesses manage all of that and more with a click of a button. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Exchange. Want to show you shares of Pinterest, the stock moving higher right now after Facebook confirmed its plan to shut down Hobby. That was a rival app that let users track progress on crafts and hobbies. Uh, Shares of Pinterest, which are up nearly 5% today, even though the Dow just turned negative, are also up about 25% year to date. Meantime, New York City is set for phase three of its reopening next week, except for restaurants. Indoor dining will no longer be allowed to resume as originally scheduled until, as Governor Cuomo said, the facts change. Now, this is happening as restaurants are reclosing and states seeing the COVID resurgence. With the stakes so high, it's a race to adapt to this new normal. And joining us is Vlad Richter. He's the CEO and co-founder of Zenput as a digital platform helping these chains operate in the post-pandemic landscape. Vlad, you're offering the software for free right now? Uh, yeah, thanks for having us on today. Um, that's correct. We, uh, when COVID started to you know, hit, the, uh, hit the country relatively hard, we decided that we'd come out with an offering uh, that would give uh, restaurant operators, grocery operators, and convenience operators, the ability to kind of manage a lot of their uh, COVID-impacted uh, protocols and, and uh, things that they're managing on a day-to-day basis. And so we've seen tremendous success with that, and I'm starting to kind of uh, converge people back into the, the full suite of everything that we offer today. Yeah, so let's talk about inventory, which seems like it must be a huge problem right now. You think you're reopening, then yep. you're not. You have no idea what demand is like. You have to figure out a whole different um, you know, type of inventory for the menu. Maybe you're changing the menu. What are you seeing happening with your restaurants, and how are you trying to help them? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I, I think there's kind of two fronts on this. Uh, on the one hand, there's a lot of, you know, especially as we're going through these opening and closing, you've got folks, uh, operators out there today that are uh, reordering food uh, and inventory as they need to when they're coming back into uh, an opening scenario. They're spending five, ten, fifteen thousand uh, dollars to try to get that up and running. And I think there's a lot of concern that the second that you open those up, the capacity may not be there, the the foot traffic may not be there, and then given a certain municipality, you may shut that down. Um, and so all of a sudden you're left with a lot of inventory in your hands that you might need to actually toss out the door. We, we end up spending a lot of time with our operators uh, focused on agility and adaptability in this environment uh, because every, every single municipality, every state, mm. um, every region is doing something a little bit different, and it's becoming challenging for them to kind of keep up and communicate different things at different locations yeah. uh, across the country. I can't even imagine. We just showed a bunch of your clients. They're all household names, Duncan and Chipotle and yep. Sweetgreen and all the rest of them. Um, can you give us a, kind of a, a case study real quickly and how you're making a difference for some of these clients? Yeah, absolutely. So um, historically, for a lot of our customers, uh, the way that they would operate and then kind of communicate a lot of the, you know, uh, the food safety procedures, the COVID uh, sanitization procedures, these would be manually done, right? A lot of phone calls, a lot of text messages, a lot of paper-based processes. In, in most of our cases, in all of our cases, what's happening is that they're now using our mobile applications with the general manager uh, throughout the day at 9 o'clock in the morning, 11 o'clock in the morning, 2 in the afternoon, is getting notifications of work that needs to get done, right? And so they're able to drive bigger change in the organization and focus on, yeah. you know, food safety handling procedures and, and sanitation procedures in a much, uh, in a much greater way. Inter- that makes a lot of sense. W- one final question you mentioned, and, and we all know this is true, that the demand side for 
ordering from restaurants is all over the place. It's totally unpredictable now compared with what it once was. Some people are getting more orders in the middle of the day than they might have anticipated, different kinds of orders and that sort of thing. Do you think in general restaurants are going to respond by, you know, McDonald's has started to do this already, but by dramatically shrinking their menus, changing them so that they can better kind of, I I know they have to figure out exactly what people want, but I, I wonder if that menu response is going to be a big thing. Yeah, we've seen that in a, in a handful of conversations that we've had, right? So your, um, your uh, quick service restaurants, your fast food restaurants may slim it down by a little bit, but typically they have a smaller offering uh, to begin with. Um, and they're having to rethink some of the packaging uh, as well for a lot of the delivery angle. And I think any of our casual dining, uh, casual dining customers or casual dining segment, I mean, you could walk into uh, a restaurant and have a relatively long menu. That's not going to work uh, in an environment where you've got to scroll through your phone, potentially and place an order. Uh, so we're seeing a lot of trimming down, right, where you might have had, you know, 10 pasta dishes. You might go down to three or four. You've previously had, you know, seven or eight entrees. You might actually focus on two or three that are the most profitable yep. and best for delivery today. Makes sense. Uh, Vlad, thanks so much for the window into what's going on there. It's good to speak with you. Of course. Thank you so much. Vlad Richter. And that does it for us here on The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.